Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter number 5, Revelation chapter number 5, and while you're turning there, I want to read a companion section of Scripture from the book of Daniel. I'm in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 4, 8, and 9. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And I heard, but I understood not. And then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. As I said last week, in chapter number 4, we get a glimpse of the rapture come up hither. And here we find that the book takes a turn, whereas John has been speaking in regards to what was going on at the present in the letters to the seven churches in Asia. Now, all of a sudden, we see that our attention is focused on things that that are to come, the the future, and for those of us that know the Lord, of course, that speaks of the rapture when we are caught up together to be with the Lord. In the first four verses of this chapter, our attention is on the scroll, and he says in verse number one, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written, Within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Let's stop there for a moment. Because here in verse 1, we see the, the source of the scroll. It comes from God. And it's important that we understand that, that John is not writing something to us that he had conjured up in his own mind. He's not telling us something that had been passed down by tradition from other people, but he's giving us information that that comes directly from God. You see, God alone knows the future. And when God speaks, regardless of what He speaks, why it's all true, but when He speaks about prophetic things, He is always accurate. If he says this is going to happen, you mark it down, it's going to happen. And so that's exactly what we can depend upon. And I'm glad that we can approach the entire Bible like that, knowing the source of the Bible is God Himself. But here when we think about this scroll, understand the source is God. But notice the secret of the scroll in verse 2 and 3. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Question mark. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So the message of this scroll, whatever it is, whatever you think, the message is undiscoverable by man. Well, you know, that ought to be expected. Because the wisdom of man is never able to unlock the mysteries that belong to God. And 
our message this morning, we talked about the mystery of misery and there are things about our experiences and, you know, they cause us to ask the question, why? And we don't always get the answer. But by being somewhat knowledgeable of the Bible, we know, although maybe not the specifics, we know that God can use these experiences for our good or for the gain of others or for the glory of God. And really, that's all of the information that we ought to need. I mean, that ought to settle it right there. That I don't know exactly how God's going to use this, but I know that He is, and that's all that matters. So the mysteries belong to God, and our understanding is dependent upon God's revelation. And if we look to any other source, we're going to be deceived. I've seen people um, that religiously read their horoscopes. I, I, I've got to confess, uh, I've never read mine. Not that I can ever remember, even before I was saved or any time. I, I, I just think that's something that, that people need to stay away from. It's kind of like people, you know, and playing, uh, messing around with a Ouija board. I think you're just opening the door for Satan to, uh, to get an entrance into your life. I mean, we don't need to know the future, but we need to know that God knows the future, and that ought to settle the matter. But here as this scroll is, is, is seen, the scroll from the Lord, we see the secret of the scroll, and he says no man in heaven or earth, nobody knew exactly what it was all about. Well, that brings us down to the subject of the scroll. You know, I've read a lot of books by a lot of different authors on a lot of different subjects, but, but none of them can even begin to compare with this book. This scroll has to do with the purposes of God pertaining to the world. So what is God's purpose for the world? Well, if we could just sum it up in a word, it would be redemption. Redemption. That's God's purpose for the world. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus is coming back again. Remember we talked about it earlier that this matter of redemption is not only redeeming us in the sense of saving us from hell, but one day, one day these old vile bodies are going to be redeemed as it were and we'll receive a glorified body. So it's all about our redemption. Now, in order to put this in perspective, all we have to do is to look back to ancient times. And if we go back to the Old Testament, we discover that in the law of redemption, there were three things that could be redeemed. You could redeem a widow. Naturally, you picture yourself in her place, and here is someone that is in desperate need, in debt or whatever, and a widow could be redeemed. Also, slaves could be redeemed. You could go as what we might think of as a slave market, and you could purchase a slave, and someone could purchase them and redeem them out of their slavery. The third thing that could be redeemed was land. You could redeem land. Maybe it's land that had been in the family in some way that that, that land had been lost uh, because of indebtedness and what have you. Well, someone could redeem that land, restore it to the rightful ownership. Now, when these transactions of redemption took place, a scroll was written. We have today, of course, the courthouse, and we keep 
we keep records of things like that. Well, they did back then. And so they would put the record of the transaction in a scroll, and they would seal the scroll seven times with seven seals, just like we're seeing pictured here. Now, in, 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 that, in that scroll that was, that was preserved by the record keeper, it was revealing the will of the party. We think about leaving a will. Well, what does that mean? It simply has to do with we are stating our intentions and our desires. That's basically what a will is, that we intend for this to happen and that to happen, you know, after our death. So whenever we think about this scroll, it's only natural for us to think about this This is simply a a representative of God's will, as it were, you might say, for planet Earth. It's God expressing what His plan is uh, for the earth and for and for His people. So this is the subject, and I think that becomes very clear. But notice in verse number four, with our attention still on the scroll, we see the sadness, the sadness of John concerning the scroll. He said, "And I wept much," and here's why: because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So. He, John is realizing the futility of man to unfold redemption's plan. That th- this is something that man cannot do. And it's not until the introduction of the Savior that his sorrow changes to a song. So now our attention is turned from the scroll to the Savior in verse 5, 6, and 7. And notice his descent in verse number 5. And there are a couple of things about it I want you to notice. First of all, it tells us here in verse number 5 that he is of the line of the tribe of Judah. It says, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. Now, whenever we go, you know, back to the Old Testament and we look at the genealogy concerning Christ, we know that he came from the tribe of Judah. The importance of this, I think, is shown clearly in the book of Hebrews in chapter number 7. If I can find the verse, it's, I think, verse number, verse number 14. It says, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And so we're not going to go into the details of all of that, but it's it's a point that that in tracing his genealogy, and this was all very important because anyone knowledgeable with the Old Testament and the prophecies pertaining to the Messiah, when Christ came, they could look at the record and say, "This this is He, this is the Messiah." And it's really remarkable when you look at what Matthew says and what Luke says concerning the genealogy. It's really remarkable, and especially those four women that are mentioned there. And it's amazing how that God just down through the the period of history, God brought that that course of genealogy right down to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So here we see Him identified as the line of the tribe of Judah, so we know exactly who He's talking about in regards to this scroll. 
The second thing he says, that he is the root of David. Remember, it was David, King David, that brought in the golden age in Israel's history. And it's King Jesus that's going to usher in the age of righteousness. What, what David was to Israel, Jesus is to all of those that have, that have been redeemed. In fact, David was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important as we think about this stroll and think about, uh, what the subject matter is that we think about the Savior and very clearly by identifying Him as being the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, we know exactly who He's talking about. But notice as He goes on and He gives a description in verse number 6. And here in verse number 6, it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, are sent, uh, sent forth unto all of the earth. Now notice in this description, he says, I saw him, and he stood. This is a picture of the resurrection. Remember, this is the one that has been crucified, and John sees him standing. He's standing. What is he doing now? He is seated at the Father's right hand. But he's going to stand up one of these days. And when he stands up, it's the time that he's going to uh, rule and reign here on this earth. So he says, he stood. And then notice, he uses the word slain, speaking about the crucifixion. He is the lamb that was slain. It says he has seven horns, seven being the number of perfection. Horns speak about power, and so this is a picture of his omnipotence. He's all-powerful, and it says, and he had seven eyes. That speaks about the omniscience, the, the eyes, the ability to see, and it's talking about the fact that not only is God all-powerful, but God is all-knowing. So this is the description that he gives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what you expect when you get to heaven and you think about seeing Jesus. You know, most people think about they're going to see him, you know, as he is depicted by a lot of the artists. My, my mother, when, whenever, shortly after I was born, I was just a little baby, and Grandma went to a Pentecostal church, and uh, they were having a revival meeting in the contest for whoever brought the most people. And whoever brought the most people won a big picture. I would say it was, what, five, five maybe six foot long, uh, two, two and a half foot high at least. And it was a picture of Jesus, you know, sitting there on the hill and just that, that peaceful thing. That, that picture always meant so much to my mother. And, and it hung in our home all of the years while I was growing up. And when I was a little baby, Grandma had taken me to that church service uh, to help win that picture because it was something that she, she wanted and she treasured after she won it. Mom was so worried, there was never a time that I wanted that picture. After I was saved, we've never had a picture, a so-called picture of Jesus hanging in our home. Uh, I don't think anybody knows what he looks like. I sure don't think he's got all them little girly-girly locks and that long flowing hair. I sure don't think that for one second. But, but anyway, Mom thought that me and my sisters, that we were going to get into big fight about who gets that picture whenever she dies. 
So she made sure of it. We still don't know to this day what she did with it, but she disposed of it in some way. And when she died, it was not to be found anywhere. I never wanted it. But a lot of people think, you know, that's the picture they've got in their mind. May I remind you, that's not quite what he is pictured as being like here. I mean, I've got to confess, this is sort of a, to our natural mind, sort of a strange picture. Seven horns and seven eyes. And, you know, we're better off to just leave all of that future stuff because we get all this stuff in our mind about my dad. He was serious as a heart attack. And dad asked me, son, do, do, you know, do you, you think there will be fishing in heaven? He was serious. He loved to fish, and he figured going to heaven, and there's water, and maybe we fish in heaven. Well, <laughs> I look, I, 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 it is such a mystery that, that we're better off not to try to figure it all out. But this is what John saw. This is what John saw. Now, notice verse 7. He's still talking about the Savior, but now he goes from the description to speaking about his dominion. And it says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So he, you know, he approaches the throne and takes the book. Now, who's on the throne? Well, God's on the throne. There's no doubt about that. And Jesus is the only one that has the right to come and approach the throne and to take the book. He's the one that has the power to do that. The Bible says all power in heaven and earth is given unto Him. The kingdoms of this world shall become His. Now, verse 8, the song begins. We've seen the scroll and the Savior And now through the remainder of the chapter, our focus is on the song. The first thing I want you to notice here in verse 8, that it is accompanied by instruments. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints." instruments in heaven. And notice every one of them. Remember, the 24, as we already talked about, no doubt represent the body of believers, just as the 24 orders of priesthood represented all of the priests. And every one of them had a harp. There's really something to this about about harps in heaven and playing music. You know, I've often thought about those who believe that We should not have musical instruments in the church. The Church of Christ folks, that's what they believe, that shouldn't have musical instruments in the church. Well, I'm telling you, if if it's good enough to have musical instruments in heaven, why in the world couldn't we have them in the church? And there are going to be these musical instruments, a stringed instrument uh, there, you know, in heaven. And, you know, you hear people talk about, and I've known preachers, I had dear preacher friends, they did not mind having a piano in the church, but no guitars. No, because that was worldly. That's, you know, and you couldn't play guitar. Both of them are stringed instruments. The strings on that, strings on the guitar. 
And of course, there's some that don't want to have drums and cymbals and things like that. I, I don't know of a musical instrument that could not be used as long as it's used in the right way. And so he says, notice, he said, I saw them accompanied this song, accompanied by harps. And now notice, not only is it accompanied with instruments, but Verse 9 tells us this song is about redemption. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every nation and tongue and people and nation. You know, so many times here on earth we sing much about personal experiences. But in heaven, the subject of our song is going to be what? Going to be all about Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. That's where we need to keep the emphasis. I'm not saying that it, that it's, that it's wrong for us to sing, count your many blessings, name them one by one. I, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with that, but and this is one of the arguments against much of the contemporary music, and I've really never quite understood this, but uh, I guess in the beginning, a lot of the contemporary music put the main emphasis upon upon man rather than, than God. At least that's what people in the know told me, you know, that it did. But I got to listening, and and, and I've noticed most of the contemporary music today is about the Lord. And that's what it's supposed to be about. Now, it might not be the particular tune that you enjoy. We've all got our preferences in regards to to the styles of music we like. You know, some people like all of the long hair stuff, and somebody, somebody else, you know, likes the more of the honky-tonk style, and we got everything in between, you know. Some people like the bluegrass style, and country western or whatever it is. And I can think of music in all of those genres that that I enjoy and that blesses my heart as long as it's speaking in a truthful manner about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be the subject of the song, and that's exactly the way it is in heaven. Now notice in this new song here, as he speaks about it, He talks about us celebrating the glorious work of redemption, that we're going to be singing this song. And he points out the fact that we are kings, and we are priests, and that we shall reign upon the earth. Notice verse 10, "...and made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth." Wow! Boy, you talk about something, I'll tell you what, listen, God's not through with you, and even if you die tonight, if you never see the sun come up in the morning, if you're a child of God, there's coming a day and a time during the millennium that you're going to rule and reign with Christ right here on this earth. That's something to look forward to. You know, people talk about, well, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I don't have anything to look forward to. I'm so bored with my life. I'm just, you know, I'm not happy with anything. It's the same old, same old. Well, just wait. The best is yet to come. Be patient. Be patient. 
Because when the Lord comes, I'm telling you, it's going to be glorious. And we're going to rule like kings and priests with Him right here on this earth. I told Bev the other day, we were talking about something. And, I, I, and, and of course, if you, if you know her, you know how crazy she is about kids. And I said, I think the Lord's going to put you in charge of all of the, all of the little kids. Uh, you know, those, the, the little ones. And, uh, and there's something to be said for that. Because God right now is getting us ready. This is one of the reasons for the experiences that we go through is the Lord is preparing us for the ministry that we're going to have later on. Think about that for a little while. I've got a whole sermon on that. You need to think about that. God is using what you're going through. Remember, that's the way it was with Jesus, right? The Bible says he learned obedience by the things that he went through. The Bible says he was tempted in all points such as we are, and yet without sin. Why? Why did that happen? Why did God allow that to happen? Because what is Jesus doing now? Is he not, is he not serving as our great high priest? Is he not making intercession for us? How could he make intercession for us had he not entered into our suffering? How could He make intercession for us had He not been tempted in all manners such as we are yet without sin? What Jesus went through not only is the means of our salvation, it was in preparation for the ministry that He's doing right now at the right hand of the Father. And God's using your experiences to get you ready for what's ahead. And here we see in the song a reminder of who we are in the Lord. We are kings and priests and shall reign. Now we come to verse 12. And here we see the acknowledgement of the greatness of Christ. It's difficult for me to get through this verse. I preached several sermons over the years from this one verse, and there is so much here, but we're just going to take a glance at it. And notice, as he acknowledges the greatness of Christ, what he says, saying with a loud voice, so I mean, you can hear these folks singing. They're not just mumbling, they're singing with a loud voice. And he says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. He alone is worthy to receive. Now look at each one of these. He is worthy to receive power. We think about tyrants such as Napoleon or Hitler and, and others who had power, but, that, but they were not worthy nor able to handle that power and use it in the right way. And here we see there is one, however, is worthy of absolute power. We ought to, we ought to thank God that the, the, the scepter of universal sovereignty is held in a nail-scarred hand. Think about with His power, what, what if our Lord was some little immature, you know, guy that had never really grown up and He has all of this power and he used that power to abuse us when we displeased Him. We can be thankful that He's worthy of the power that He has. It doesn't take you long to envision someone, somebody you can think of that has 
power here upon the earth, and they're not worthy of the power that they possess. They're not trustworthy. We Look, all around the world we have people that have the power to push a button and launch launch bombs to start a nuclear warfare on this earth. And they, some of them are so vile and so filthy and ungodly that it's amazing. They, they don't deserve that kind of power. But Jesus is worthy of all power. And then it says, and riches. Well, that's true because all things were created by Him and for Him. In other words, He's the rightful owner of all of creation. And so in that day... He's going to rightfully claim everything that belongs to Him. He's worthy of power, worthy of riches, worthy of wisdom. You know, we think about mortal man, and among mortal men, Solomon was the, was the wisest. But let me tell you, a greater than Solomon is here. Solomon cannot even begin to compare with the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. You see, wisdom is personified. And he does the same thing in the book of Proverbs. Put in a person, as it were, and that person who is full of wisdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy of power and riches and wisdom. And then he's worthy of strength. Only he who was crucified in weakness, that is human weakness, And clothed in power, divine power, is able to cope with every situation, regardless of what it is. He's worthy of strength. He that, that, That word implies that he has ability. He is able. The Bible tells us he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever even ask or think. He's worthy of such strength. And notice, and honor. Now, you bestow honor upon those that, you know, are being recognized for service rendered. But he who is esteemed the highest among men can't even touch the hem of the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's none like him. Like I often say, he is in a class by himself. He deserves all of the honor possible. And then there's that word, glory. Many years ago, I... I wrote in the margin of my Bible, I don't know where I read it, but uh, in a book somewhere it says, The highest place that heaven affords he holds by sovereign right. As King of kings and Lord of lords, he reigns in glory bright. He's worthy of glory. You see, the Bible not only demands that we glorify God, God's deserving of what He demands. And then notice, He's worthy of blessings, it says. That word blessings implies uh, praise for happiness. And, you know, maybe a good way to look at it is praise is the one thing he who has nothing can give to the one who has everything. You don't have to be rich to praise God. You don't have to be highly intelligent to praise God. Anyone, every child of God can praise God, and that is exactly the kind of sacrifice that God is looking for. Remember last week we read from the book of Hebrews where we are to offer up the sacrifice of praise unto God, what? Continually. 
Not hit and miss, not once in a while when we're having a good day, but continually we are to praise God and you don't have to have anything to do that to give God who has everything something that He not only desires, but something that He deserves. So many times we think about how wonderful it is that God is such a blessing to us and we need to think about that. But do you ever think about being a blessing to God? Think about that. To bless God. Wow, what greater thing could we do on the earth? Now here's the one, uh, another wonderful thing about this. We've just looked at these seven things, and I'm not going to go through the Bible and, and comment on, on, on all of the verses, but here's what I want you to, to see as we conclude. And that is when we look at all of these seven things that Christ deserves, all seven of those things are made available to those who love Him. What He deserves, He makes available to you. Power. Acts 1, verse 8, Ye shall receive power. Riches. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Ye through His poverty might be rich. Wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Christ is made unto us wisdom. And then there's strength. Philippians 4, 13, For I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And then there's glory. John 17, 27, The glory which Thou gavest me, I have given them. That's Jesus talking. The glory I receive from the Father, He says, I've given them that glory. And then there's honor. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 30 says, Them that honor me, I will honor. Think about that. God honoring you. And then there's blessing. Ephesians 1, 3 says, He hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Isn't that a wonderful thought to think that what Jesus is worthy of, what He's going to receive one day, He makes available to you and I. Why would He do that? He does that because we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. The old-timey preachers used to have a phrase, I never hear it anymore. It's almost a thing of the past. In referring to the Lord, they referred to Him as our elder brother. There's not a thing in the world wrong with that. We need to think about that. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything He is worthy of, everything that He will receive in that final day, all of those things are available to you because you are a child of God. And that's something to rejoice about. So let's, let's keep our eyes on the future. Many years ago I was preaching some messages about prophecy. And uh, had been talking about the tribulation period and how horrible it was. Had a young man in the church and his family, uh, he, he and his wife Vicky and two, two little girls, I believe it was. And he came to me one day, he was crying. And uh, he said, uh, we're going to move. And I said, where are you going to move? And he said, I don't know, that's why I'm talking to you. Where would be a good place? We're, we're, we're going to move out of America. I mean, this kid was really shook up. I say a kid. I mean, he's a grown man. 
But he was really shook up because he realized, you know, in the tribulation period how horrible, how terrible it's going to be. And he was trying to picture in his mind some safe place, Australia or somewhere, where he could get away from it. And I reminded him, look, there's nowhere you're going to go on this earth where you're going to get away from it. Instead of getting away from it, you need to get ready for it. Now remember this. Next week, the Lord willing, we're going to get in chapter 6. And that's when literally all hell begins to break loose here upon the earth. We're going to get our first snapshot of the tribulation period. It's going to get ugly in a hurry. And this is one reason why this chapter is so important. And as we go through the struggles and the difficulties of life, regardless of what it is, what suffering we're going through, it always helps us to remember that the best is yet to come and to remember what we're talking about here tonight. I'm glad that this chapter isn't tucked away somewhere over, you know, in some other place in the Bible. Uh, I'm glad it's right where it is because it gets us ready for what's coming. You cannot think too much about heaven, folks. You need to think more about your glorious future with your wonderful Savior. And that will keep you going through the good times and through the bad times. And there are going to be some bad times, as we're going to see. But thank God, as His people, as His people, we have the wonderful assurance that God has not appointed us to wrath. We're going to be delivered from this, but we... As Christians need to do all we can to reach everyone we can, while we can, before that evil day comes upon them, upon our dear loved ones. Let us do what we can to win them to the Lord, remembering that God's purpose is what? Redemption. Redemption. That's what it's all about. Let's stand together. Father, tonight we thank You for... Your exceeding great and precious promises. We're so thankful for the information that we have here that we're able to, we're able to look through the prophetic telescope of your word and see what shall be. And it excites our heart. It thrills our soul. And I just pray tonight that every person will be encouraged by this because realizing that here upon this earth, regardless of how bad it gets, It's going to not just be better, it's going to be perfect. And that we're going to be joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. So may we leave here tonight encouraged by that fact, but may we also be challenged to do what we can to reach those that that do not share in these many blessings that we've talked about here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus and pray especially for those that do not know him. For those that might be here tonight, for some folks that, folks that were here this morning that, that by their own admission, they've never trusted Christ as their Savior. And Lord, they sat through the service this morning and they listened. And I just pray that you'll continue to work upon their heart that you'll speak to them throughout this week and that you will use your word to open their eyes and help them to see that Jesus is the light of life and that they not only need to know him, but they can know him 
And they can have the same wonderful hope, the blessed assurance that we enjoy, for we pray in His name.